The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Each episode, we look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. We were all just like, again, like very high functioning. So while he was talking to me, I was typing. I was looking at him, but I was typing, which is something I did all the time. And he looked at me and he's like, what's, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you're typing things that aren't words. And I was like, what do you mean? And I looked at the screen and I had typed like two paragraphs of gibberish. Last week, we spoke with Jerry Colonna, an executive coach who talked about radical self-inquiry and how facing the demons of your past help you become the best leader you can and tackle any big career transitions that come your way. Today, we'll hear from Alyssa Mastromonaco, who faced one of those big career transitions. Alyssa grew up in politics, the White House, really. I met her back in 2003 when we were both working on John Kerry's presidential campaign out of a strange row house in Washington, D.C. But since then, she went on to become the White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations in the administration of President Obama, the youngest person to hold that position ever. And you might also know her from her best-selling books or her crooked media podcast, Hysteria. Post-Obamaland, Alyssa became Chief Operating Officer of Vice Media and then President of Global Communication Strategy and Talent at A&E Networks. Now, anyone who's a fan of politics or has watched The West Wing knows the power of working in the White House. But You could also imagine how profoundly it means giving up sleep, time, and even possibly your mental stability. For Alyssa, it became her identity, and she channeled her anxiety into a work ethic that literally helped the most powerful man in the world get his job done. But then it was over, and she had to deal with that loss and decide what her next challenge would be. I mean, you had, during the Obama administration, let's Mm -hmm. face it, just like an objectively extremely stressful job that would make probably 99% of people a walking ball of anxiety. You grew up in politics. and, and, And I'm wondering if the fact that you didn't seemingly feel intense anxiety in those intense political jobs was because you did sort of grow up in that world. I think that could be part of it. I think the interesting thing is that my charges during all those years were, I was better at my job because of my anxiety. So I guess I didn't think of it as anxiety. So for me, part of my anxiety makes me fastidious, Mm -hmm. right? Because Mm -hmm. the more that you have under control, the more you know what's coming, the less stress you have right? I mean, it's intuitive. It makes total sense. And so as I, as I sort of progressed from there to the Kerry campaign, 
to the Obama campaign, which was arguably for me, like the fastest pace of anything I had done. I, I hired people who were all like me. It was like, okay, we always see what's coming around corners. Like it is our job to just be so focused. So by the time we got to the white house and I became white house deputy chief of staff for those listening who are old enough, I was Josh Lyman in the West Wing. That was my job. <laughs> when Barack Obama offered me the job of deputy chief, I am also just like a very logical, very methodical person. And I said, you know, are you sure like I'm the right person? And he's like, oh, yeah, you're the right person. And I really hemmed and hawed about it because I knew that there was so much about the job that I didn't know. And it turns out that my hyper at the time I didn't think of it as anxiety I thought that I was just hyper alert and I was like you know the first I think it was the first week I was deputy chief David Axelrod was leaving the White House uh he'd been senior advisor uh to the president and everyone's like come on Alyssa are you coming are you coming and I'm sitting in my apartment I'm like um I just got an email that like Mubarak's been deposed in Cairo and I need to evacuate <gasps> AMSITs out of Cairo what are AMSITs they're like, what's an AMSIT? And I'm like, it's it's the national security shorthand for American citizen. Mm. And like, I didn't know how to do it. So I just made a really quick list. And I was like, okay, what do I need to know? Okay, I need to know where I get the plane. I need to know who these people are, where they're from, and where they need to go. And okay. And so I made my list. And one by one, I just used my spidey senses. And I called the people who I thought would have the answer. And, you know, within 20 Four hours, those people were on their way back to randomly. They were from Illinois. Hmm. They were on their way back from Illinois. And, you know, but I did not rest. I did not, while I was waiting for answers, I was always searching for more information so that when someone finally did call me back, I wouldn't just have the questions I had, but I would have 10 more, you know, just for good measure. What you're talking about, because I think a lot of people would, would listen and say, yeah, I get it. She's methodical. She's organized. But I also hear like intense strategic and leadership qualities. You are, mm -hmm. you are thinking conceptually. You are thinking six steps ahead. You, you are, you are doing everything that we always say like a visionary CEO needs to do, right? Like, where will the market be for cellular technology in five right. years? <laughs> That's what you were doing when you realized Mubarak getting to Posed meant X, Y, and Z for Correct. you. True. Is that related to the anxiety? Talk about that. You know, I think so. I think that, you know, an interesting thing about me, people always ask me, you know, you were a woman and there must have been sexism. And like, I have to say, truthfully, in Obama land, I never, ever felt sexism, but not from the people who I had come up with, mm. but from the people we met along the way right, the foreign policy folks that weren't on the campaign, the White House military office folks, I always, whether it was perceived or real, felt ageism. Hmm. It was, I think I was 34 when I became White House Deputy Chief of Staff. And, you know, what I never wanted to do, I just, I never wanted to be the person who let down Barack Obama. You know, people oh underestimate. God, I can't imagine that. Like, <laughs> no, but when you think about it, you know, rewind, it's such a different world now. But when the, the, the press was really hard on us. Yes. And so what I never wanted to be was an end. I will say that we felt a heavy weight of being the people who worked for the first African-American president. Mm -hmm. And you didn't want to be the person that ever 
like took the gl- the glean off the halo or yeah. anything like that. And so, you know, for me, I was like, I just always felt that I had to be the best. And what I now understand is that it was almost like my anxiety back then was a utility. <laughs> it was. And I think that it because I was so present that I kept it totally under control and used it to my advantage. So do you think, though, that you are good then at compartmentalizing? Because clearly, I mean, you have anxiety. You were consumed 24-7. So part of you may have been able to sort of channel all these feelings into real productiveness, right? I did. Yeah. That is exactly, you know, the fact that I never thought never identified, never thought to think in that entire time that I had anxiety mm. um, was just really interesting to me. Like it didn't, it didn't start becoming even remotely clear to me until after I had nowhere to focus all that energy. I was like a very happy, high functioning individual. <laughs> <laughs> but you but, know, <laughs> it, it's funny because I, I just heard the CEO of the founder of JetBlue, he actually got fired as CEO. And, and he was his story sounds so much like your story. He has ADHD. Really? Yes. He, so he also has ADHD. But you can tell that this is a guy who he's got his stuff. <laughs> right. But but what he does is he builds airlines, but also making sure that every person on the JetBlue fleet, no matter how big and highfalutin their job is or small is, is 100% like on task. And I think that these leadership qualities, like we don't talk about them a lot. It's like you're, when it's like I know exactly when the policy people, I'd meet the policy people on campaigns and they'd be like, "I want to work on Middle East policy." And I'd be like, "Well, right. I, I got a code of fundraising email right now. Like, sorry." <laughs> Yeah. That's exactly. It's like we're going to the hog lots in Iowa. So why don't you research that policy? Exactly. But we don't we don't prize this kind of highly driven, highly focused leadership um, that I think we're talking about, but that a lot of CEOs and visionaries have. It's well, it's an interesting thing because the the if you look at the founder culture that we find ourselves in, right? And mm-hmm. I worked at Vice Media. I was the COO. I certainly understand founder culture. In most of those, there is not a high priority on everybody is a visionary. Everyone is a creative. Even in like a media, like in a tech company, it's like the person's like. But what about like actually running the company mm-hmm. and knowing what's going to happen and how to take care of them and to understand, like to feel when you're talking to the employees, like, are they going to unionize? I think they're going to unionize. If they do unionize, what are we going to do? If they do unionize and okay, and we don't want contagion across the company or we do whatever, like how can we take what we think that they should be getting and spread it across the company over a three-year period, right? right? Like that is a very specific skill set that isn't always valued. (laughs) The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. 
On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. You, you went through one of the most intense and difficult and probably, you know, singular experiences that anyone can have. You... You functioned so highly. I want to talk a little bit about your your IBS, your irritable your irritable bowel syndrome, because that is a, a feature throughout your books, which I love you for. God bless you. Oh, thank you. Some people love it. Some people really don't. <laughs> I mean, I love it because let's face it, a lot of people have it. We we all put. Is there any sense in your body that like that was where you were putting feelings or? lack of control, that you were so controlled everywhere else and balancing so much and your body was giving you feedback? Like, how do you see yes. your IBS in the context of all of this? So there were a couple things. Um, one, my IBS was like a low grade problem most of my life, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But in the White House, it would really, there'd be real peaks. Mm -hmm. And I could associate the peaks with being out of control mm. and not necessarily professionally out of control, but like there was a trip that we were taking to, um, Gori Island in Senegal, which is, uh, the Island where the slaves were all, um, mm -hmm. shipped off. And it was 95 degrees. We were on a boat and I was with Dan Pfeiffer and it's an amazing story because Valerie Jarrett was sitting across from us on the boat and she didn't realize what was going on because she wasn't part of our conversation, but she thought that we looked so cute. She took a picture. Mm. She sends the picture to me that night. And I was like, do you know what was happening in that photo? And she's like, no, you guys look so cute though. And I was like, I was telling Dan, I was definitely going to have an accident <gasps> on this boat. And unfortunately, God bless Dan Pfeiffer, my platonic life partner, because he saw me through more of these things. It was almost always on a foreign trip. And the funny thing is so many people became aware of my stomach issues that I was so hungry once and we were in a hold room. I think we we're in Vietnam or Cambodia. And I went to go reach for something and Secretary Clinton pulls a granola bar out of her bag. And she's like, Alyssa, just eat this, you know. And I was like, I, oh, you know too about my stomach? Okay. And so what would happen is that like, that I would like, so when we were in Senegal, that was the beginning of a trip. We had a, a bunch more countries to hit on that swing. And I was thinking, it's like, okay, well, I'm on this boat and then I get to the boat and we're going to be on the island and we're going to be on the island for like an hour and a half. And then I have to get back to the hotel because I need to approve this, this, and this, and this, this, and this is still outstanding. And so it's like, when I would let my guard down a little bit and let myself be overwhelmed by mm -hmm. what I thought I had to be doing, I would be like, you, I would literally 
let my brain go for two minutes and my stomach would be like, of course. and it's when I was both out of feeling, when I was feeling even remotely out of control or that things were happening faster than I was going to be able to deal with them. That would be a real trigger for my stomach. And so luckily I knew that, you know, I would try to, and Pfeiffer knew it. So he would, you know, sometimes it's just getting your brain mm-hmm. and that's when, you know, right. That's how I understood how much my brain was connected to my stomach because the minute I would start to feel anxious, my stomach would just start to churn. So fast forward, you say that there was a point, I think it was around 2012, that you were sitting sitting in your office and oh, um, yeah. David Pluff, right? Mm. David Pluff came in <laughs> and uh, I'll say, I, st- I still choke up a little bit thinking about it because I remember how scared I was at the time. Um And we were all just like, again, like very high functioning. So while he was talking to me, I was typing. I was looking at him, but I was typing, which is something I did all the time. And he looked at me and he's like, what's, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you're typing things that aren't words. And I was like, what do you mean? And I looked at the screen and I had typed like two paragraphs of gibberish. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. And Pluff's like, all right, well, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and I'll, I'll come back and we'll check in. I was like, cool. And my assistant, basically, there was a wall that was went two-thirds of the way to the ceiling, and your assistant was on the other side. So there was essentially nothing I was ever doing that either Dan or Clay didn't hear. And so Dan comes in. God bless him. He comes in, and he's like, uh, Liz, just want you to know, I called down to the White House Medical Unit, and uh, Dr. Jackson's expecting you. And I was like, what? And he knew, he knew that I needed to go see someone that I was not okay. Like, and he knew me well enough to know that when I paused, when he heard me talking to Pluff, that like, I was not okay. And so I went down to the office and at this point I am crying. I've made it through the West Wing. I've walked past the Rose Garden and I'm now in a place where most people can't see me. And I have just started crying and I walk into the medical unit and the nurses are there and Doc Jackson's there and he's like, it's okay. And I went in and he gave me a gross neurological exam and he did a couple other tests and he's like, here is what I think. I think that you are functioning on a percentage of your brain capacity because I think that you are exhausted, like Mm. truly, like clinically exhausted. And I was like, well, what do I do? And I had taken Ambien before for sure on foreign trips and stuff. But he's like, here's the thing. And this is a very interesting thing because it both worked and it didn't work. Mm. He's like, here's the Ambien. He gave me control release Ambien, which keeps you asleep, right? It doesn't just knock you out. It helps keep you asleep. Yeah. And he's like, I don't want you going to bed at midnight. Like you got to go to bed at like 10 o'clock and you got to try to wake up at five. Right. I was waking up at 430. I was going to bed at midnight. Mm. And what I learned much later is that the reason I was so tired was because I was literally just in bed. Mm. I wasn't sleeping that my mind was never slowing down and therefore I was not having restful sleep. But after about eight to 10 weeks of really trying, literally of having like warm milk before bed, <laughs> and like taking my Ambien. I was feeling so much better and I went in and I did the test again and I was like 70% improved. But that was a a moment when I was like, I think that it's maybe time for me to start thinking about leaving. 
you know, because it takes when you, you when you work in the White House, it takes you a long time to really come to the conclusion that like you have to leave the most special right. place on earth, you know, I guess next to Disneyland. But um, so but that was when I really started thinking to myself, like, you know, I'm someone who's always been able to function at 120 percent. And now it was probably like I was functioning at 95 or 100, but I could feel the difference. And, and you say that you got that feedback, like you would come up with ideas and meetings and people would sort of look at you like. That's that's we've already talked about that. That's not a great oh, no, idea, it was, that right? Was, it was actually worse than that. It was that I was losing. So the more tired I get, the my ability to be positive diminishes, as mm-hmm. I'm sure is true with most people. Yes. So what was actually happening is that we, you know, I'd worked for the man for almost ten years at this point, and what would happen is people who were new, who had fresh legs and fresh eyes, who were joining the team, they'd be like, hey, what about doing this idea? And I was like, oh, did it in 2009, wasn't great. (laughs) And I don't mean to make myself sound like I was, that everybody around me would have been like, what's wrong with Alyssa? But I felt it. How did your anxiety manifest or or did it when you actually finally left, when you walked out, when you handed in that badge? And you said, I'm just a human now. So it's very funny because I was in denial until the day I left. Um, And so when I was leaving, um, Pfeiffer was taking over my office and uh, he went into a meeting. And when he came back from his meeting, I had not only packed up my entire office, but I had moved him in Mm. because I needed to be that busy. (laughs) Right. And he was like, buddy you don't have to do this. And I was like, honestly, it's not for you. Like, I really just need to keep moving forward. And he's like, okay. And so the guy who takes your badge, the they come and they do what's called reading you out, which means they come and they tell you, you no longer have clearance. Anything you learned while you had clearance is not yours to share, that it's illegal to share, blah, blah, blah. So as this poor man from the security office is in my office, I start bawling. And I was like, oh no, this is it. This is the flood of emotion. Mm -hmm. And I said to him and I was like, I'm sure this happens to you all the time. (laughs) And he was like, no. And I was like, cool. And so I packed everything up. And of course there is the loveliest party on the back patio of the Oval Office. The president as my going away gift got me a beautiful, beautiful original painting of an Iowa landscape. because that's where it all happened for us was Mm -hmm. Iowa. Mm -hmm. And I started to really get emotional. And, you know, I said, I'm, I'm worried for my husband because he's never known me without you, Mm. you know, like, Oh my God, I get emotional just thinking about it because I felt it so profoundly that like, what would happen when I wasn't with them anymore? Like, Mm -hmm. who was I? And that night we had a wild, because Kathy Rumler, who was White House counsel, she was leaving a few days after I was. And so we took the opportunity to throw the rager of all ragers. And uh, you weren't allowed to bring your phones in. Susan Rice dropped it like it's hot. Mindy Kaling it was like was a like, skiff. It was a skiff. You know what? It was exactly <laughs> a skiff at that dance party in Georgetown. And as I was packing up and I, you know, I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm not, I don't even want to go to my party. I'm so sad. I don't even want to go to my party. And Pfeiffer walked me out and my Ford Escape was packed up as if I were leaving college. Right. And uh, we cried and hugged 
like Brenda and Brandon were saying goodbye on 902 when she went to school in Minnesota, you know, and then the next day was the White House Correspondents Dinner. And of course I went. And then Monday I went to the Met Gala as a guest of Anna Wintour, right? Wow. Okay. So Friday, Saturday, Monday, I am killing it. Tuesday comes. And I'm like you, I set my alarm because I was convinced that people were going to need to be in touch with me. Now, a really interesting and important thing is that I totally believe, and Barack Obama always agreed, the most important thing to do as a manager is like, if I get hit by a bus, it shouldn't matter. The world should be able to go on without me. They should know where every important document is. Every skeleton is buried. Like it should not be hoarding that kind of information is actually like a complete miscarriage of leadership. And so I had, I mean, for, for months I had been writing memos, doing briefings, debriefing, like you name it. But I still thought that that morning everyone was going to need me. And the truth is no one needs you. And so I was uh, watching a lot of HGTV and, you know, the problem is the fascination with cable news didn't make me feel separated. You know, it wasn't like an easy, and I was still in Washington, D.C. So I became severely depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, My anxiety, there was no funnel. There was no channel for it. It was, it just consumed me. So you had to feel your feelings after so many years of literally not having a minute in the day to feel them. Right. What happened? I cried a lot. I, uh, I mean, I just, I I cried a lot. I felt like, am I ever going to do anything again? I felt an extreme anxiety to get a new job. Hmm. You know, like some people say to you, you know, like Melody Melody Barnes, who was the head of the Domestic Policy Council, who left a couple years before I did, when the announcement went out that I was leaving, she emailed me and she said, here's the deal. The first two weeks are going to be terrible. And then after that, you're going to find yourself falling asleep in the middle of the day. Let it happen. <laughs> like, and I kept thinking, I was like, okay, well, this is what Melody said was going to happen. This is what Melody said was going to happen. And, uh, but the feeling wasn't going away. And so I became very fixated on um, finding a job because I thought that the feelings would go away, you know, if I found a job and I worked someplace instead of actually doing the decompression I needed to do, you know, and really just like, I literally should have gone to an ashram or like some sort of kibbutz or something. Were you in therapy at the time? No, 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 no. Because I didn't think I needed it. I thought it was normal, (laughs) you know, or so abnormal. I didn't want to tell anybody about it. You know, I was, I was also, I was just really lonely because all of my friends were still in this place where they worked 20 hours a day, you know, and then the the bigger problem is that I went into, I had been a certain person to a group of people for so long Mm -hmm. that then when I did take the job and I was the chief operating officer at Vice Media starting in the January of 15. So you took how many months off? Like six months off or? Yeah, about six months. Yeah. About six months. And, but even still, I officially started in January, but I went to the board meeting. I started doing stuff in December, you know, and then I started at Vice and I realized that uh, it wasn't going to go away. The feeling I had wasn't going to go away by by itself. 
So of course, you know, I just, and it's, it's such a funny thing because you think to yourself, I've pivoted, I've done so many different things. How can this be hard? You know, like how can people like I was pretty well liked, you know, most of my career, like you always have people who don't like you for one reason or another, but for the most part, like I love being part of a team. And what I kind of realized when I got there is like, maybe not everyone wanted me to be part of the team Mm. and that, and I tried so hard to make everyone like me and to work with me, not even like me. I tried so hard to get everyone to work with me in the way that we worked at the White House, which is a fundamentally different environment. Yes. And I just kept feeling like I can't crack the code. I can't crack the code. And, uh, you know, the moment that I think it really, I really sort of splintered, um, the editorial team was unionizing. They had voted mm-hmm. to unionize. We recognized them and we were going through a collective bargaining. And I for the first time here, I have been the champion of the people for the greater part of my life. And now I'm representing management at a collective bargaining table. I'm like, how have I come so far? Like, how has this happened? You know, like I'm the person who in another world would have been advising them on how to unionize. Right. We did a couple rounds of collective bargaining. And the last one, the approach was not one that I had, I had wanted to, to take. I'll say that. And the reaction was even worse than I had imagined from the editorial team. And I, I had the most unbearable stomach pains. I mean, unbearable. The next day I ended up going to the emergency room, which I had only done one other time in my life. Um, and I said, I'm so sick. I'm so sick. I think it's like the bird flew. I like, I didn't know what it was. And they kept being like, you're fine. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not fine. And I went to the emergency two other times after that within about a, a week. And I was telling my girls, my my White House ladies that were always part of my team, we have an ongoing text chain to this day. And I told them what was happening. And Jessica said, you know what? You know, my mom has lupus and she goes to this gastroenterologist. You should go see him. And so for the grace of God, he took me. I went in to see him, I think the next day. And he did 90 panels of blood And asked me like 300 questions. And he got to the last question and he said, when your stomach is upset, and they were all about things that affect my stomach. And uh, he said, is there anything that makes your stomach feel better? And I said, wine. And he was like, sit up. And I'm like, what? And he's like, there's almost no scenario in which a real stomach issue would be made feel better with wine. And I just started bawling. And because his next question was, tell me about your job. Hmm. And that man ended up dealing with the therapy that I had probably needed for two or three years. And he said, here's the thing. You've got anxiety. You have IBS, but you have severe anxiety. And you have made it so much worse because by never being like, I just have anxiety. Like, it's totally fine to have anxiety. Things can help you with anxiety. But I had just kept stuffing it down and stuffing it down till my body was like, stop it. Mm-hmm. We're not okay. What would be your advice to someone who's listening to this who wants to make a big pivot in their career and has felt like they're super needed? It, it You know, their career fills their need to achieve, to to feel wanted, to do all the stuff, but who knows they need to leave and is scared. Oh my goodness. So my advice is you can do it. 
Like you can do it. It's you have to reset what you expect to get out of it every day until you really, because like how long does it actually take you to settle into a new job? Right. Right. And so part of the problem is that you go from having been someplace for a long time where you had proved yourself, where people trusted you to a place where even when you were deputy white house chief of staff, you go into a new place and people are like, well, what does she think? She's all that. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, do I, do we even want to deal with her? And the truth is you just got to do you. You just have to be yourself and either it's going to work and it's going to be awesome or you're going to be like, you know what? I gave it two years and I'm still not feeling like I'm getting everything out of it that I want to be getting out of things. And that's fine. You because know, that's you, why, like, you didn't the, stay at Vice, right? I mean, you... you, you no, I, in, le- I, w- I was there for two years. Yeah. I was there for two years, and which was great. And I learned so much. I w- If I could go back in time, I would still take the job. I wouldn't have changed anything because mm. it did teach me so much about myself. But... The truth is that like the most important thing I think anyone can do, and I'm really looking at you ladies, is like be so just hardcore about saving money. Having a fund that's like in case something goes wrong. (laughs) And it's a couple of months of rent. It's a couple of months of living expenses so that you don't have to suffer. Right. You have told your bosses since then. I mean, you're how 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 would you treat your anxiety going into a big stressful new job next time like would you have oh. a plan would you tell everyone on the team what would you do i am very i refuse to be in the closet or in the shadows about anything anymore so when i left vice i went to work at any networks which was a major vice investor cuz i wanted to learn about linear television and both the people who worked with me and uh, my boss, who was Nancy Dubuque, I was like, oh, by the way, I'm going off of Zoloft. And I just want to tell you, because I don't know if I'm going to act different, but (laughs) just know that I'm in the process of going off Zoloft. And sometimes people are very taken aback. (laughs) And they're like, oh, 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 okay, thanks for sharing. But I'm not going to not tell them. Because if I am sad, or I am not acting myself, I want someone to say to me, like, Alyssa, you're not acting yourself. I know you told me you were going off your Zoloft. Why don't you go check with your doctor, right? That's what I want. And so I tell people, and I can't tell you how many notes I have gotten, how much feedback I've gotten from women who are like, thank you for telling me that. I told my boss I have IBS. And so because of the IBS, like, they understand now that when I'm sitting at a table and my stomach starts to hurt, I'm not being petulant when I get up and walk out. Like I'm potentially having IBS. And that's why when people yell at me and they say, oh, like, Alyssa, like you overshare. You know what? For the four people I've offended by oversharing, I'm happy because there are probably a couple hundred who I have helped. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, drop me a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or you can tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review, my producer, Mary Dew, the team at Podcast Garage, and all of our guests who are telling us their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, 
and this is The Anxious Achiever. <laughs>